Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, Rick Stroud, Eduardo Encina here in Jacksonville, where the Buccaneers have uh, beaten the Jaguars 28-11. to uh, We're going to talk all about that game here in just a minute with my buddy Cop. Also, today, big day, of course, USF fires Charlie Strong. A lot of news there. Steve Versnick will have a discussion with Joey Knight coming up in just a minute. But first, uh, here from TIAA Bank Stadium in Jacksonville, Eduardo, um, this was an interesting game for the Bucs. Obviously, the Jaguars um, have not been playing all that well, and Nick Foles in particular. He ended up getting benched in this game at halftime. But the Bucs win 28-11, to and what was I thought unique about it was it was the defense that led the way in this game, uh, particularly Devin White with a couple of turnovers, an interception, and then he picks up a, a, a sack fumble by Shaquille Barrett and runs that in 14 yards for a touchdown. And before you knew it, the Bucks had a 25 to nothing lead. They got a little hairy in the second half when Gardner Minshew came off the bench. But even then, Sean Murphy bunting a rookie with a big key interception in the end zone uh, to take away that drive. So I, I think, you know, they've got momentum now. They've got two wins in a row, three out of four, and suddenly it looks like maybe Bruce Arians' team can have a good second half. Yeah, so what we know about the NFL is that, you know, it's obviously we say it every, every week. It's a week-to-week league. But, you know, once you start stacking up wins and vice versa, when you start stacking up losses, that's where you really gain momentum. And this is the first time this year that this team's done that, you know, won consecutive games. And, you know, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. They had a pretty a quick, uh, good, happy flight to Jacksonville, from Jacksonville back to Tampa. But, um, you know, I asked Peyton Barber, who played a really interesting role in this game, um, just about, you know, what's the difference between, you know, what this locker room's like and, and what it was maybe like four weeks ago, you know, and he was saying that, you know, it's it, it's definitely different. That it's um, you know, we feel that you know we're not taking it you know any further than than what this is, which is two two games in a row of winning football. But um, you know, this one is one that, you know, like you said, the, the defense really dictated the pace of the game, and they did it by by creating turnovers, and that's something that this defense really hasn't been able to necessarily do with consistency. So you know, again, we start seeing this young defense, some of these young playmakers starting to, to come into their own. Obviously, like you mentioned, Devin White was big. He had a huge interception where basically he was just spying Nick Foles, jumped in front of a rod and D.D. Westbrook over the middle of the field. Got a big interception there. They turned that into a touchdown. Um, he's at the right place in the right time when Shaq Barrett comes across and, and, and strips Foles. They knew that, that they were going to be able to get some stripped, uh, some sack, sack strip, strip sacks mm-hmm. on Nick Foles. They know he holds the ball a little bit. They know he kind of dangles it out there. And they got three of them today. So, um, you know, he, like I said, Barrett stripped one. Devin White was right in the right spot, ran it back 14 yards for a touchdown. Boom, you're up 14 nothing, right? And then at that point, it just kind of becomes a game of management. You know, you just hope you don't give it away. Obviously, the, 
the the Jaguars uh, went to Garner Mishnu in the, at the in the second half, and he gave him a little bit of spark. He's a little bit different quarterback. I'm sure that he kind of threw the Buccaneers off a little bit because you know, you're preparing for Foles, and then there's a guy, this guy who can kind of run around, is a little bit more mobile, can do a little bit more uh, with his arm, and and and, and he, he comes in and gives him a little bit of a spark. But then, you know, probably the biggest play of the game is you know the the the, the Jags are driving. You know, in, in basically like the one yard line, mm-hmm. uh, seven plays in the seven, within yes, the ten. Seven plays inside the ten, yeah. and you know if they score in that drive, it's a, all of a sudden boom, it's a one score game, right? Yeah. And so then uh, you know, but but Sean Murphy bunting another one of these rookies who's really kind of every week we've seen him progress and gain confidence comes up with a big interception, and you know that might have been the play of the game there. So, um, and on offense, you know they kind of, you know they spread the ball out, which is really good to see. You know, Big game for Bashar Perriman, career high in uh, in in receiving yards. Uh, O.J. Howard had five catches, the most he's had this year. So you combine that with a game where maybe you know there were uh, Mike Evans and Chris Godwin were probably as contained as they're going to be as as a, as a unit together, and you got some balance. You know, you got four guys with over 50 receiving yards. This isn't a day that you know they didn't have Scotty Miller because he was injured. So a lot of things to 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 really take away from, and also too it's that you know. Jameis Winston has to walk away from this being like, you know what? I threw for 300 yards for for six straight games coming into this. You know what? Our record wasn't that great, you know? He he can pick, he can throw for 260 yards, spread the ball out, not necessarily even need a great running game, and, uh, and they can win a game. Obviously, the defense dictated this game because they were able to get turnovers and get and, and, and give the offense the ball, but the offense still was able to to make make good on those things. I think you know, Winston's talked a lot about the past couple of weeks, complimentary football, and you know it doesn't need the statue doesn't need to be pretty, and it really wasn't that pretty today. But you know, it, but that that's still winning football. Yeah, I want to get back uh, just to you know talk a little bit about the defense, and and um, they've had two games now that they've put together really good performances. Right, um, they go up to Atlanta. Um, they beat up on Matt Ryan. I think they sacked him, what, six times? Six times, yeah. Um, and then, you know, on Sunday against the Jacksonville Jaguars, they sacked Foles and Minshew a total of five times. And, and it was really the combination of the pressure. We saw Shaq Barrett, of course, really made the big play that got the ball out that was recovered, of course, by Devin White and running for a touchdown. We saw Devin White last week with two sacks. He's really, uh, I think, healthy. I think he's playing faster. Him and Levante David are, are the strength of that defense, uh, along with what the, the push they're getting from JPP, who had another big day, uh, and, and of course, uh, Shaq Barrett. Um, but, you know, there was a moment in this game, which I thought was interesting, um, in the second quarter, where they throw a swing pass out to Leonard Fournette, and, and Devin White essentially body slams Fournette, and they both get up and kind of start jawing at each other. Now, these are two former teammates at LSU. White was a a young teenage rookie, a freshman, when, when you know, Fournette was going to become, uh, you know, the sixth overall pick or something like that uh, by the Jaguars, and, and he was a man. You know, he was a big physical. He's still one of the more physical players in the NFL. But, you know, as, as White said after the game, he says, you know, we're brothers after the game, but we're enemies during the game, and I wanted him to know that, um, you know, that I'm not a boy anymore. I'm a grown man, and, and you know, I'm, I'm here to – to play football, and and I thought, you know, just that mentality uh, is why they drafted Devin White. And today was a perfect example, and it may not be a coincidence that, look, the the player that was on the board that everybody uh, thought maybe the Bucs should have taken, if not Devin White, was Josh Allen. 
And Josh Allen's a hell of a talent. I mean, this guy had his ninth sack today. That's a Jacksonville rookie record. He's going to go on to have a double-digit sack season and be one of the best rookies in the league. Both players are terrific. But for the Bucks, they simply felt that White was sort of a tone setter, sort of a, maybe in the mode of Patrick Willis or Ray Lewis, and he was a playmaker. And now we're starting to see those big plays, those tone-setting plays. And this is the first time I can remember in a long time where the defense actually put the game away. I mean, they, they helped build that 14 to nothing lead, which then became 25 to nothing. And you're right, Jameis Winston didn't have to do a whole lot. But I think they're finally getting uh, out of Devin White by his playmaking, sort of what's going to become him and Vita Vea and some of those young guys, and certainly on the back end with the, the ones you mentioned, Sean Murphy bunting. Um, is going to become the, the core of this right. defense. And when they do that, they look like a good football team. Right. And, and we're not going to – this this seems a long way off from being a, a 2002 you know, oh, caliber God, defense. Yes. But, you know, they've got some pieces here to build around. Yeah, and there's some, there's some young talent here that – that can make plays, and that's what you want. You want guys who are around the ball a lot, mm-hmm. who can who can cause turnovers. And and over the past few weeks, you know, we've really kind of seen that. You know, and you know, one thing also too, just taking aside from the Devin White thing, is that you know, let's look at the production that that these outside linebackers gave oh them today. You know, we 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 spent most of the week scouring the injury report to see if yeah. Jason Pierre-Paul was going to play, to see if Carl Nassib was going to play. He get he was, you know, sick on, on Friday, missed practice, you know. And all four uh, four different outside linebackers registered sacks, including yeah. Nassib, who had a strip sack, including Pierre-Paul, who continues to be a guy who, you know, no matter how many times he practices during the week, you know he's going to come out and, Fly out balls. and, 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 yeah. and, and play and play hard. Yeah. And then Sam Ocho, also the newcomer who's been here a couple weeks, got a sack as well. So, you know, it, 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 you, when you see those kind of things, it's it's promising to see because you know at at four and seven, five and seven, veterans for a lot of guys it's easy to be like eh, oh yeah they're making know. business decisions yeah, they, yeah. I mean they they these are their lives this is their livelihood but and at the same time we th- this team you know, I think one thing the one big takeaway from it was you know they really showed and this is a really bad Jacksonville team you, I think we learned that over the course of the week listening to Doug Marone yeah. you know listening to, to Tom Coughlin this week and, and and Nick Foles like this team's really down and out the sky's falling here mm-hmm. but um but still like you know I, I think one thing that you can take from this is that these guys aren't they haven't far from giving up on this season and and now you know you kind of see a little bit of a path here that uh you know the four games left and you know there's 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 some winnable games within this stretch, and uh, you know who knows. Like I said, you, you first you stack them up. I think this team is a gang ahead of itself. You know, talk to players. Uh, you know, you, but you've got to win two first before you can win three or four, and that's you know, right. That's what they've done. You know, uh, there are some things that that happened offensively um, that we can talk about, mm-hmm. and you know, one is that they started the game with Peyton Barber. Uh, I'm sorry, with. Uh, not Peyton Barber. I was thinking Ronald, Ronald Jones, Jones as, as their main running back. He played a bench essentially one series and or so, and then he missed a blitz pickup, and then he went with Barber, who who sort of had the hot hand early. He had a 15-yard touchdown run. In fact, he had two touchdowns in the game, um, but he only rushed, you know, 17 times for 44 yards, which is not a very good average. The Bucks only averaged 2.4 on the day, um, and yet 
you know, Ronald Jones stayed on the bench. It was, you know, and I was getting, like, people were asking me on Twitter, like, what up with Ronald Jones? Because we knew that the Jaguars had given up a lot of rushing yards coming in this game, 200 yards to a bunch of guys. I think Ronald he Jones was, he was, was a hot fantasy, was start, a fantasy this start this yeah. week. And all of a sudden, he's standing by Bruce Arians and he's healthy. Well, Bruce Arians cleared that up afterwards. He said, look, you missed the blitz pickup, and if you can't do that, you're, you're not playing. It's as simple as that. I thought that was rather harsh because, you know, but if you think about it, the quarterback is your franchise. He's, you know, he's the most important player on the field, and, and one mistake can knock him into next season. So, you know, certainly Arians, uh, the combination of Barber running well and, and what had happened, I think that's probably probably why they uh, why they took him out. So, um, you know, I, I, I assume he'll come back. I You know, the, the, the important thing, and you mentioned it earlier, was they've been trying to find – a third receiver, right? They've been trying to find somebody to take some of the pressure or just make the plays that are there because of all the attention that Mike Evans gets, that Chris Godwin gets. We saw the game that Godwin had a career game last week. Uh, Mike Evans always gets a lot of targeting, and he did again on Sunday. I mean, the guy uh, was targeted 11 times and only caught four balls. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it, it was it was Perriman with his best game, five receptions on just six targets. 87 yards. The 32-yarder was a big play. And then O.J. Howard, man, uh, you know, everybody's wondering, like, where is this guy? Well, he was there today. Um, five receptions on six targets for 61 yards, including a 25-yarder. And they were big plays. Both Perriman and Howard moved the change. They made plays on third down and made plays that resulted in first downs. And that's what we've been kind of waiting for with this offense is, okay, you know, when is somebody else going to step up? They lost Adam Humphreys in free agency. They didn't want him. And it's really kind of been the Godwin and Evans show. But now, if you could get these other receivers going for Jameis Winston, um, they would really have something there. Yeah, and, and like you said, I mean, I think the big thing here is, you know, the, the not just that they were, were much more involved in the offense as they've been, but the, the kind of catches that they made. You know, mm. Perriman had three, three third-down conversion catches, um, Howard had three catches. That four of his five catches were for 10 yards or more, and three of them were for first downs. So they're not just catching balls. They're catching balls that keep moving to keep sustaining drives. Right. You know, so, so this is more than just, you know, get, get a guy, hey, I'll feed you here, I'll feed you there. You know, these are important catches. So I think that's a big step forward for this offense because, you know, we've heard so much, and Mike Evans talked about it. He said something about, like, he's like, you know, from watching these guys practice every day, you'd be thinking that they got the ball all the time because of how they practice. We hear all these stories about how great Bashar Perriman is at practice, about you know how great a blocker he is, about how how he has his great chemistry with Jameis during practice, and how much they they spend so much time after practice throwing balls to each other. Until today, we really didn't see that, and and and, and now we finally have. So you know, no matter what happens moving forward, this is a good step though because at least in other teams' eyes. They have to kind of think about these guys now, you know. And when you combine that with how you're going to game plan Evans and Godwin, that has to really affect this offense for in, in a positive way. Because you know, before you could double Evans, you could double Godwin, and then you know just let the rest of force the rest of them to hurt you. And these guys did hurt Jacksonville today because they were they were making big catches. Absolutely, and then I mean, Jameis Winston managed to spread the ball around. Um, you know, he had what like eight guys, I think, had receptions. Um, all I mean, told, seven or eight Four of those players. guys had four guys with 50 yards or more. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. that, that's spreading the ball out. Too. Yeah, so he did a nice job, a nice job with that. You know, it's interesting, um, you know, Winston took some sacks again. He got hit quite a few times. He ended up with four sacks, and I think, 
Arians would have liked to have seen him throw the ball away uh, a couple times, especially on fourth down. But um, there was almost a, almost kind of a, yeah, huh, uh, attitude that Winston had on the podium, which is like, well, you know, when you play defense and you run the football, it makes things a lot easier, right? right? And that's sort of been those those people who are big Jameis Winston fans and, and, and big defenders of his, including Bruce Arians to some extent, um, will tell you uh, he hasn't had much help on those sides, right? I mean, again, they didn't rush for a big average, but they, were, they had the lead so they could run. They could run right. late in the game. They could milk the clock in the second half. They could strangle Jacksonville, limit their possessions in a sense, um, and, and not allow that comeback after Murphy Bunting's interception. Um, but I think I think there's a little bit of, you know, told you so right now in that, hey, the more the defense, you know, does its job, the more the offense is able to run the football, the more we're going to win games around here. And Jameis didn't, wasn't exactly a game manager. He made some big-time throws in some big-time situations like you just yeah. mentioned. But he is somebody who can win in this league. We saw Nick Foles did not look good at all. Right. And, and quite frankly, I don't think Nick has a lot of guys to throw to, you know, and I don't think his offensive line is very good. So it's, it's not like he's playing behind the Eagles, right? Um, but by the same token, um, I, thought, I thought Jameis was a little, not really defiant, but sort of, I told you so. Now, let's not get carried away by the fact that they have beaten the Atlanta Falcons, who have proven to be a really bad football right. team. we saw that on Thanksgiving. And the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now, here comes Indianapolis, okay, at home. They've got... Three of their last four games are at home, right? And they've won three out of four. So, you know, you're playing the best teams are going to play the rest of the schedule in in Raymond James. That should help them. The Colts have been sort of reeling of late. Um, They're a very capable team. They're another, you know, AFC South team that likes to run the football a lot. That should play in the Bucs' hands because the Bucs did a great job on Leonard Fournette. I mean, you know, Jacksonville only averaged 2.9 yards a carry. Fournette had... 14 carries for just 38 yards. So they took another elite running back that has been running the ball well and kind of slowed him down. If they can do that against Indy, then um, all of a sudden you've won three in a row. You've won, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, four out of five. And then you got games at Detroit without Matthew Stafford. Um, their third quarterback. Yeah, yeah, down to their third quarterback. And then, you know, home against uh, – uh, you know, you got you got home against the Texans and, and then Atlanta to finish the season. So the Texans being probably the best team they'll face the rest of the season. Realistically, they have a chance, not a great chance, but a chance to have a still a winning record or at worst, you know, have a very strong finish. Uh, and, and I think because of the youth on the defense and because it's a new system under Todd Bowles and because Arians is in his first year, Winning these games mattered, I would think, on down the stretch. Yeah, I mean, some fans might not want to hear it. You know what I mean? Some oh, fans worry might, about the draft. Might, and... might think about it like eight and eight, nine yeah. and seven. What's it mean? You know, and and then it's it's answering questions towards oh well, there's a good finish, so we'll bring everyone back. You know, we'll bring well, we'll, sure. You know, Jameis will come back, and and everything. You know, we'll, and if it doesn't carry over, it won't mean anything. Right, but. Um, but you know, it's better than the than the alternative, right? I which think is, so. Which is you know, five and eleven every year, right? So. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that there is, there's, there's some momentum building, and obviously, you know, they go out and they lose to the the Colts. They next week, it all starts from square one again. But right, you know, but but three out of four, that's something. Two straight, that's something else. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that the schedule does allow them to play a lot of their games at home. Now they haven't necessarily played well at home, 
no, so far? They've but, won one game. Right. So, um, so, so there's that. But they have three more. But at the same time, you know, I mean, I think, I honestly think that the toughest game they're going to have is going to be that Houston game. I think that, you know, they have, you know, Deshaun Watson kind of in the same mold as like Kyler Murray, uh, well, Russell Wilson, yeah. these guys who can sling, and don't run. make don't make mistakes and are elusive. So yeah. those guys give the Bucks trouble. You know, Nick Foles, Matt Ryan, guys like that. We saw Gardner Minshew. It's a little bit more different than the other mold. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but but I, you know I, I think that you know th- there's there's some very winnable games on the schedule, and you know I wouldn't be surprised if this team did win three out of its last four, and I would probably be surprised if they won all four. Oh, I'd be up. shocked because but, you know. But um, you know the, the definitely momentum's on the side, and, and I think it's all coming together with the, the kind of the the maturity of, of guys on the field too. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. like when we talk confidence about, when we talk about Devin White, Sean Murphy, Bunting, you know. Jamal Dean, unfortunately, right. uh, had to leave the game early because of right. a shoulder injury. Didn't sound like they were that. They said a bruised shoulder. I think yeah. Bruce said at the end of the game. So they could have probably put him back in, but right. they had the twenty-five to nothing lead. So let's hope that he's one of those guys that can continue to get back on the field. I mean, Alex, another injury, Alex Kappa, I heard his, his, his I think, I'm trying to figure out which arm. The other was. elbow, the, the, other one, elbow. the one that he didn't, the arm that he didn't yeah. break. Yeah, and the Earl Watford ended up playing the guard for the rest of her, probably majority of the That's second half. That's something to watch for sure. Which is something definitely to watch over the course of the week because Kappa, as much as, you know, you really don't talk too much about him, but, like, he's been, solid. He's, he's been a really solid guy, especially a guy who really didn't play that much into last year, really was kind of thrown into that that right guard spot he's done a really good job and 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 more than anything with those guys you more miss them when they're gone <laughs> you know yeah. the offensive linemen the, you, you more miss them when they're not there that's so right. that's something to really keep a, keep an eye on but um but yeah going back to schedule this will be it's, this will be an interesting stretch and all of a sudden rick it's interesting again <laughs> well you know i mean that yeah it, like you said it's a week-to-week league and winning does that they've not been eliminated yet i mean obviously they're not going to make the playoffs most likely even with nine wins because as we sit here taping this on a Sunday night, we know that Seattle has, you know, uh, 10 wins and we know that, um, you know, certainly a team 49ers have 10 wins and we know that there's at least one team um, from the NFC North that'll be a division champion and then Minnesota, once they, if they get to 10 wins, that will eliminate the Bucks. So most likely the wild cards are gonna come from the NFC West and from the NFC North in all probability, you know, none of the South teams are going to get there with their records. The Bucks now, I think, are in second place. They actually passed the Panthers. If you can believe that. So, I mean, you know, for a team that's been in the cellar and was there again just a couple weeks ago going into Atlanta, have now suddenly risen to the to the top of the bottom, if you will, of the other teams because New Orleans clinched on Thanksgiving night, uh, clinched the division. But um, it's interesting. And, and the other thing, you know, when you talk about this defense, and I, there's no way around this. These guys are playing for contracts. Like, you think about a guy like Carl Nassib who was sick all week, right? And he managed to get on the field and have a sack fumble. Um, very quiet five sacks this year, right? Jason Pierre-Paul, who missed six games and had no training camp, suddenly he he can has shown that he can still play the run, he can still rush the passer, he can still make an impact. And then, of course, Shaq Barrett, who now has 13 and a half sacks, 14 and a half sacks, He's going to start to threaten the franchise record held by Warren Sapp. It's, it's within reach. And it he's is. Got, I think uh, he tied Simeon Rice for the most sacks through 12 games. So, yeah, incredible. Um, so he's, he's, incredible he's, he's, he's on pace, man. He's, uh, you know, he, Boy, is he, he going to get paid. And, and that's the thing. You see you see what, what these guys did. You talk about the sacks and spread them around. Is, you know, it's all about it's all about making sure your guy, you can you can handle your, your assignment and, 
and, and, and beat your man. Win the one-on-ones. And, uh, you know, Shaq, because guys like Jason Pierre-Paul and Carl Nassau were getting to the quarterback, and not to mention guys like Via Vea. Via Vea caused a couple of those sacks by, by you know, pushing, flushing, the pushing guys out. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, but but Shaq, this was Shaq's first multiple sack game since week three, I think. Yeah. That big four sack game against the Giants. Right. So, you know, he had kind of been quiet. He got a sack here and there, but, but he's picked today, it up lately. He got, he's picked it up. So, uh, and that's good for him because obviously he's going to get paid no matter what. No doubt. But but when you look at like when you evaluate a season, you always want to see him finish strong too, you know. And so, like I said, he's going to get paid no matter what. I think he's going to be wearing another uniform next year. I don't know which it one. It all depends. I mean, a lot of times too. I mean, you don't know. I mean, you're right. The money, he's going to go where he gets paid the right. most. I, I don't care if that's Jacksonville right. or some other lower rung team. He will go because I don't know if the, people just saying he will go because he's going to get paid. You wonder how much he'll get paid. Like, will the would the Bucks get him for less, or would, would he? You know, knowing that he knows this defense, knowing right. that he's perfect for Todd Bowles' system, and he succeeded in it, and knowing that he's had the success here, you know, the possession being nine tenths of the law, that that might give the Bucks an edge. He won't be guessing where he's moving his family next, right. and that sort of thing. So we'll see. But man, you know, my point to all this is, you got some hungry players, like. You talked about, you know, teams could check out at four and eight, whatever they were, and then all of a sudden, you know, these guys are four and seven, these guys are playing hard because I think a lot of them have a lot to play for individually as well as collectively. So, um, I don't know. It was a uh it, it was the Bucks did exactly what they needed to do to a team like Jacksonville. They jumped on them early, they had them down twenty five to nothing. They they kinda got a little lazy there and, and, and Gardner Minshew gave them a spark, but they managed to finish the game and then finish the Jaguars for their second straight win, three out of four now, uh, heading into uh, Sunday's game against the Indianapolis Colts, which will be, I think, a, a really competitive game. The Colts are, are a good football team, have been pretty much all year, another team that they're going to have to run the football uh, against. So uh, we are here in Jacksonville. Meanwhile, it was a busy day um, in, of course, college football. A lot of coaches getting fired, including USF parting ways with Charlie Strong, and uh, Steve Verstink, of course, our producer, my co-host of this show, um, had a chance to talk to USF beat writer Joey Knight. And here is their conversation. All right. Well, Rick is uh, driving back from Jacksonville now as uh, Rick and Eduardo covering the Bucks and the Jags, uh, the big victory for the Buccaneers. But meanwhile, back in Tampa, uh, athletic director at USF Michael Kelly has fired head coach Charlie Strong. This coming a day after the two of them apparently uh, discussed things and firing was not on the table, but that changed today. So we've got uh, Tampa Bay Times USF beat writer Joey Knight on the phone. And Joey, what exactly happened in the last 24 hours to go from a conversation about what's next in the program to uh, now you're fired? Yeah, it's been a really kind of bizarre, Steve. Uh, the uh, the day after that embarrassing 34 to 7 loss that kind of put the ribbon on this uh, four and eight season for USF. Um, I do know that Charlie Strong had a conversation with Michael Kelly um, on Saturday, the day after Um, I was told that at no point during that conversation was a dismissal or a firing or a buyout or anything of that nature talked about. It was basically just a conversation about, you know, what the program needed to do going forward and, you know, just um, what they could do better. And then I'm told at about 2 o'clock Sunday afternoon, 
uh, Michael Kelly by phone called Charlie Strong and said, you know, I hate to be the bearer of this and break this to you, but, you know, we're going in another direction. And, and you know, that's, uh, that's how the rest of my Sunday was, just dealing with the fallout of Charlie Strong, the fourth coach in USF history, being dismissed after three seasons, losing 14 of his final 18 games. But, you know, I think people expected this, obviously, based on the way the, um, the strong era ended. As I mentioned, losing 14 of the last 18. Um, only three of those four wins were against, uh, you know, FBS competition. But just the way it ended was, was kind of strange. They have a conversation one day, and then, you know, um, it seems like things are, are moving forward. And then the next day comes the phone call, and here we go. All right, well, before we get to what's next for USF and where they may look, what happened over these three years? Uh, Willie Taggart leaves for Oregon. Charlie Strong is hired in after he was at Louisville before that, or Texas and then Louisville before that. He comes in, has a really good first season, 10-2, and two, and then it goes. he wins the first seven games uh, in 2018. Then they lose six in a row to end the season. And, of course, this year, just four wins out of 12. And, and most of those losses were pretty bad losses, too. I mean, it wasn't, a lot of those games weren't even close. So what happened? What, I know he cleaned up some of the program. I know he changed some assistant coaches going into this season. But, you know, why the three-year slide here? You know what, Steve? I think so much of Charlie Strong and Willie Taggart's success at USF can be tied to two words. Quinton and Flowers. Uh, I think it's been very well chronicled. I know I chronicled, chronicled it to death about what happened when Willie Taggart finally decided to unshackle Quinton Flowers and just let him be the improvisational dual threat dynamo that he was in high school. Everything changed for USF. They, they went on a tear late in two, 2015 after a one and three start, finished eight and five, went to a bowl game. 11-2 record, one of the best seasons in USF history. Um, it sets up Willie, you know, becoming a prominent Power 5 candidate, gets him the Oregon job. Charlie Strong comes aboard to replace Willie. He inherits Quentin Flowers for his senior year. And though he wasn't running exactly the same stuff Willie was, Quentin was still athletic enough and good enough to kind of will that 2017 team to a 10-2 record, another bowl victory. And then Quentin Flowers moves on and, you know, coincidence or not, the skid happens under, under Charlie Strong. Um, they started out, as you mentioned, 7-0 and last year, the second year of Charlie, uh, but that was kind of a smokescreen. The teams they beat were just, you know, they, it was really a bottom-heavy schedule. Uh, the teams they were beating early on, East Carolina, Tulsa, Connecticut, UMass, a bad Illinois team, and they really had to struggle to win a couple of those games. They had to rally to beat Illinois. They beat Tulsa on a field goal on the 
next to the last play of the game. So it was kind of a smoke screen. And then last, the second half of last year, you know, when their, when their schedule, you know, improved significantly, just kind of, that's when the bottom started to fall out. Um, offensively, just got very stagnant. Um, defensively last year, they couldn't stop the run. So, and then, as I mentioned, the schedule beasts up. You're playing the likes of Houston and, and Cincinnati and UCF, a very improved Tulane team, and they couldn't win any of those games. Um, uh, the ones that they were close, such as Temple on the road, they, they couldn't, I mean, they had a lead, but they couldn't finish it because the offense was so stagnant. So then Charlie comes in uh, year three, 2019, um, cleans house a little bit, gets rid of two or three assistants, gets rid of, you know, a handful of players, um, promises, you know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, just kind of really overhaul and um, refigure and retweak our, our strength and conditioning approach, get bigger, faster, stronger. I know he paid some, some lower level strength and weight training assistance out of his own pocket, kind of gave them a raise out of his own pocket, was really committed to doing that. Brought in Kerwin Bell, the former Gator quarterback who had led Valdosta State to a, um, a national title, a D2 national title in 2018. He was going to insert a pro-style offense. Everybody seemed on board with it, and it just never clicked this year. Um, you know, USF is going to finish last in the American Athletic Conference in total offense with, with about 338 yards a game. Um, you know, they, they, the um, six-game losing streak eventually extended to eight because they lost the first two games this year. So that's the longest losing streak in the program's 23-season history. The defense improved a little bit, not greatly, but enough to, to where, you know, if the offense had had a pulse, they would have won a few games. But the offense just never clicked. Uh, you know, they lost Blake Barnett, the starting quarterback, uh, early in the season. Uh, he, he was getting clobbered because they didn't have a good pass protection early on. So Blake goes down with a season-ending ankle injury. So now you're stuck with Jordan McLeod. God bless him, a redshirt freshman, but he just hasn't played very much. So you got to a rookie quarterback back there. The protection was inconsistent all year long. Um, the receivers just didn't, it collectively didn't have an outstanding year. And, you know, it was kind of an imperfect storm. The uh, things just never clicked offensively, even as the defense, you know, made, uh, made mild progressions. And the other thing I'll say, Steve, is they never had a kicking game. Of course, we know about the Cincinnati game a few mm -hmm. weeks back. They lost 20 to 17. They, they missed four field goals. And, you know, during this 18-game stretch we talk about where they were 4-14, and 14, they did not kick a field goal longer than 37 yards. So just the lack of a proven kicker, somebody who could go in there and get them three points when they needed it, I don't think that can be understated. But, again, as I said at the outset, I think so much of this is just tied to the departure of Quentin Flowers. And USF has just never really been able to, uh, to compensate for that. Well, and, and we were talking before we recorded, too, is, you know, this was kind of the year that maybe they could have made some hay in the AAC East. I think AAC altogether is getting much better. I mean, Cincinnati's much improved. SMU's much improved. Houston's had a down year, but with Dana Holgerson there, you expect them to continue to, to move upward in that. Memphis, of course, is very good. Um, Navy's always a tough opponent because of the way style they play. But USF, U, or UCF had a down year this year. You know, you thought this was a year USF could have made some hay. Yeah, I think if 
Charlie had his 2017 team with Quentin Flowers and Augie Sanchez and Marquez Valdez-Scantling. I think they would have won the East. Cincinnati won the division, but they were certainly not an offensive juggernaut by any means. They had some deficiencies on, uh, on offense, and we've seen UCF. They're certainly, they were certainly mortal this year. Uh, they, they lost at Tulsa, and they were there for the taking. I think if, you know, if you, USF had that team of two years ago, they probably would have won the division going away because the East was there for the taking. But for, for whatever reason, things just never clicked with that Kerwin Bell offense. The players, the funny thing is the players swear by it. They, they say, you know, they think, you know, that, it, that it's there for the taking, that it will work and it can work over time. But for whatever reason, they just couldn't seize the opportunities. And part of that may have been a young quarterback who just hadn't yet been, you know, who hadn't yet developed enough to where he could make the reads that he needed to make in, in, in the time allotted. And that just comes with time and that comes with reps. You know, some of it may have, I'm sure, was, you know, the pass protection or the lack thereof. Um, and some of, you know, just drop passes. Plain and simple as that. We saw that in the season opener against Wisconsin. You know, a couple of early drop passes snowballed into to a whole lack of momentum. So, you know, there, it was, like I said, it was an imperfect storm offensively this year. But the East Division, you, you know, otherwise was really there for the taking. And, again, opportunities is kind of the key word or the common denominator with this 2019 team and USF just didn't capitalize on any opportunities this year. Well, let's look ahead to where they may go from here coaching wise. And one of the possibilities you just mentioned, and you say the players swear by him is Kerwin Bell, who was brought in to be the offensive coordinator this year. He's won national titles at the division two level. What chance does he have to become the next head coach? I think it's a really polarizing name. But again, what, what kind of what I think gives him a chance is nobody, nobody bailed on Kerwin. You didn't see any rogue tweets or, um, you know, I've asked a lot of people who, who were inside that locker room. They said, you know, the rock locker room never got fractured. They believed in this guy. I, I really think the players believe that in time and with reps and, you know, with, with an experienced quarterback, you know, that this thing can work. And Jordan McLeod will be an experienced quarterback next season. Um, another thing is, you know, it just takes a certain type of, of athlete to run the Bell system, and they didn't necessarily have all those athletes. Obviously, Kerwin inherited what he inherited when he took the job. But a few more guys like Johnny Ford, um, who was suspended for, for eight games this year, that also didn't help. But a, a few more scat backs and quick slot receivers who could run timing routes and get open, you know, a few more of those type of athletes and the players really believe this thing can take off. So I think Kerwin Bell will get a look. I mean, the guy, I don't think the guy forgot how to coach again. He won a national title as the head coach last year at Valdosta state. He had a very successful um, tenure before that at Jacksonville, which was a non-scholarship program. He's won at the high school level of a high school in Ocala. He was wildly successful there. So the guy knows how to coach. He's, he's a brand name, especially among the, you know, the old school Gators. He's kind of an icon there. Um, so that, that's somebody I think that will get more than a passing consideration just because the players, even after all this, even after four and eight, still seem to believe in him. Yeah, that was one thing I would say for the USF team as a whole this year, even with Charlie Strong, is – 
you never felt like the team gave up or gave in. If anything, you thought this was a team. Um, good, bad, right. no matter, you know. Particularly, we talked about after the Cincinnati loss, where you have a freshman kicker who, you know, misses four field goals, and the team didn't throw him under the bus. They embraced him, and, and it was it was all about, you know, this is going to get better. This is going to be the team. And if one thing you can say is, you know, Strong and Kerwin Bell and, and the whole coaching staff did not lose that locker room at all. That, that's, that's what I thought might say Charlie in the end. Obviously, when you lose 49 to 10 to Memphis and then you go over to UCF and really, you know, you get blown out again, I think that was his final undoing. But even up until that point, just the way they were still, they were able to preserve continuity on this team. And again, you saw, you didn't see any rogue tweets out there. You didn't see anybody transferring in midseason. You know, you didn't see anything happening on the sidelines in terms of, fights or shoves or screaming, I thought that would save Charlie in the end, just the continuity and the way he was able to keep everyone on board. But again, I mean, in the end, you know, a 39-point home loss to Memphis, a 27-point loss to your rival, um, you know, in the biggest game of the year, that just that can't be ignored. Well, another candidate, and this you tweeted this shortly after the news broke that Charlie Strong was fired at USF, is Willie Taggart, the former USF coach and now former FSU coach who was let go earlier this year, you say has strong interest in this job. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of people who are who are close to Willie, and he would love the opportunity again. Um, obviously, you know, th- there was uh, more money to be made at the Power 5 level, a uh, better opportunity ultimately to play for, you know, to reach the, the playoff and, you know, play for a national championship because that's always been his goal to become the first African-American coach to win a national title. So he did what he had to do, what any, you know, what any, uh, I think any aspiring coach would do when he got the offer to go up to the power five, he took it. But I've also been told that, you know, he still believes, you know, that Tampa was his favorite place just in terms of quality of life of where to live and, you know, where to work. He loved his time and, in Tampa. That's people close to him telling me that if he came back again, if USF had any interest and I, I don't know that they do, you know, he would, he, you know, there would be no financial worries. He's financially secure. Let's face it. I mean, the the buyout that he's going to get or will be negotiating with FSU will be substantial. So he can just, he can coach and he doesn't have to worry, you know, financially about anything. And, He could, um, you know, his son is a three-star quarterback prospect. You know, he could, you know, potentially bring Will Taggart, young Will Taggart, um, who's a quarterback, to Tampa with him and coach him. So, you know, there's that option. And, you know, he's from Palmetto. He would be closer to his family again. So I, I have heard that he would really relish the opportunity, you know, if given that opportunity. But, again, Michael Kelly's going to play this very close to the vest, as he should, and I don't know if the um, if the interest is reciprocated at this point. Well, one thing to remember is both you know Michael Kelly and the new president at USF, neither one of them have any ties to Willie Taggart. They were not here when he was the coach, so you don't have any history, right. and, and that can be good or bad not to have that history. But there is no history there, so it's not like, hey, I already know this guy. He's already worked for me. Let me call him again and bring him back. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. Stephen Corral, the new president. Uh, we don't know. I mean, he's only been on the, on the job for a few months. We don't know how invested he's going to be in athletics, how hands-on or hands-off he's going to be. 
So uh, again, uh, uh, an entirely new president and Michael Kelly, you're right, has, has no um, working connection with Willie one way or the other. He, he came on board, you know, well after Willie had gone. So um, again, we just don't know if the interest is, is reciprocated, but you know, it's, it's just kind of an intriguing storyline to this day. Um, but, but I do know that there's an interest on Willie's part, you know, and we'll just, we'll just see what plays out. But like we said at the outset, there's no Quentin flowers again in Willie's corner. You know, if he got a second go round, um, a lot of people think Quentin flowers kind of bailed Willie out and saved his job. And uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. This time he's going to have a rebuilding project very similar to the one he inherited, and this time there's no Quentin Flowers around. One other former coach that could be considered a possibility, he's an FSU assistant right now, is Jim Levitt, who was the original coach of the USF Bulls. But there's some interesting language in his uh, settlement that he uh, had with USF in 2000, after his 2010 firing that may get in the way of this. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, I mean, we're talking almost a decade ago, but our paper reported, you know, when Jim reached a settlement with USF after his firing, that that settlement stipulates that he cannot apply for any job at USF, quote, in any capacity, unquote, and that if he does, USF, quote, is free to reject and disregard it, unquote. So I will let the, uh, the social media labor attorneys um, decipher that, what it means in 2019, but, um, you know, the, the, just the language that says Levitt cannot apply for any job at USF in any capacity um, would, would give me pause if I'm one of those people. And there are many of them who are clamoring for, for Jim Levitt to return. But, you know, there's something else about Jim, you know, and nothing, nothing, Steve, in college football surprises me anymore. Just, you know, just the volatility of this sport and the business behind the, the sport, nothing surprises me. But. Jim Levitt built this program from scratch, uh, did amazing things with it, took it to a certain level, but never got beyond that level. They really were never close to winning a conference title um, in the Levitt era. This is a program that still has not won a conference title at all. And Jim seemed to get them there, seemed to have them on the precipice a couple times, but they never could get over that hump. So, you know, as he was the perfect guy at the perfect time to build a program from scratch, and he did that. But USF fans have to ask themselves, is he the guy that can take them to the next level, and that's winning a championship? Because the first time around, he did not do that. Well, Rutgers just did that with Greg Schiano, who they brought back now. And he, uh, he didn't obviously build it from scratch, but he's the one who put the program on the map, essentially, and, and pretty much got them into the Big Ten. I don't know if they get in the Big Ten if he hadn't gone, been there. But he never won championship. They brought him back. But another interesting thing with Levitt, much like Willie Taggart, which could be in his favor. I mean, you know, he got a settlement from the school after his firing. But Judy Genshaft's not there. This, uh, Michael Kelly was not his athletic director. There's nobody from that era there still at the university in, in those in those roles where that could be a hindrance. So that may help him in that regard. Absolutely. Judy Genshaft is gone. She's retired. I believe Doug Woolard was the athletic director of record when, um, when Jim was fired. He's gone. So, yes, all the principal players um, are, are gone from that. So um, you're, you're right. That's a good point. Again, just, uh, you know, we, we know what the, what the settlement stipulates. And, again, uh, I, I'm certainly no labor attorney. I, I don't know 
you know, what this language of this settlement means in 2019. It's almost a decade ago, but it, uh, trust me when I say, you know, since the news of, of Charlie's uh, dismissal arose and even long before that, people clamoring for Jim Levitt. It's been blowing up my timeline. So he's a name that will probably stay out there. Well, we've talked about Jim Levitt. We've talked about Willie Taggart. Is Skip Holtz looking for a job? <laughs> no, I think we can... I think we that's one name we can safe, safely skip over. It's just there hasn't been enough time, Steve, since that debacle. There just hasn't been enough time. Fair enough. Well, let's go over a couple other names. And you, you've got a, a great uh, list at uh, TampaBay.com and in the paper this morning as well. Um, Lane Kiffin at FAU. Of course, he's coached at Tennessee. He's coached at USC. Um, he's now doing – he's at FAU. This would obviously be a big step up. Uh, but still in the right. state of Florida where he's recruiting now. So what about Lane Kiffin? I don't think it would ever be boring with Lane Kiffin. You want somebody to, to you know, kind of light a fire under this program, I think he would be the guy to do it. You know, one of the knocks on Charlie was he was kind of stoic on the sideline, personality-wise. He wasn't great in front of the media, which is neither here nor there. You know, that's not what wins games, but, you know, sometimes that's what can win an audience. But Lane's the total opposite. He would, he would never be boring. Um, his, uh, his offense obviously works. Um, it's exciting. And you're right. You, you mentioned it. Uh, certainly the American Athletic Conference, the top group of five conference in the country, I don't think that's disputable, would be a step up from Conference USA. So it, it would be definitely a climb up the, up the rung for Lane. But, you know, so many dismissals today around the country – Ole Miss and Arkansas is looking for a coach and Missouri's looking for a coach. Who knows? Lane may be in line for one of those gigs um, as, as, the, uh, as the carousel continues to revolve. You brought up Brett Bielema, who was the former Wisconsin and Arkansas coach, now currently the Patriots defensive line coach. Um, had a lot of success right. at Wisconsin. Didn't necessarily translate at Arkansas, but if he's looking to get back into college and head coaching, this may be a good spot for him. And, and I threw his name out there, Steve, because – just as woeful as the, uh, the pass protection was uh, for USF this year, who better than, you know, a former Badger to ins- just instill the, the toughness and the physicality and the technique that's needed to succeed in the trenches, because that's what USF needs right now. They were, you know, that's probably, you know, you want to talk disappointments on this year's team. That's probably the most glaring disappointment. They had every starting offensive lineman back that started the Gasparilla Bowl last year. And just from night one, from, from, the, from the opening night, that unit just never seemed to click and just really struggled to protect the quarterback. Um, struggled, you know, and when you can't protect the quarterback, you know, then you, you become one-dimensional and that allows, you know, that allows defenses to pin their ears back and, you know, just come after you. And it, it all just started up front. So who better you know, just to instill, you know, how, how to, how to properly run block, how to properly pass protect than a guy from Wisconsin. Well, you, you mentioned some of the rising stars and, and maybe some of the up and comers. Um, the coaches we kind of talked about are coaches that have either had head coaching jobs or whatever else. But what about Larry Scott, who's now currently the Gators tight end coach, but he was in an, on the inaugural Bulls team as an offensive tackle. So he knows this program very well. Right. He would know the, the history of the program, the challenges it faces. He would come in, you know, not, not with eyes wide open, but with eyes straight ahead, focused, knowing exactly 
what this program needs and the obstacles it faces. So Michael Kelly could hire no one who's more familiar with the program, obviously, than one of the original Bulls. And, you know, if you go back to 2015, when Miami was having that disastrous season, just got killed by Clemson, they fired Al Golden, Larry Scott took it over on an interim basis, led Miami to four wins in their last six games, took them to the Sun Bowl. So, you know, he kept that team intact, if memory served. And obviously, you know, um, the, the, the team didn't get fractured enough to where, all, you know, it totally came apart. They won four games down the stretch for Larry Scott, made a bowl game. So I think that speaks very well for him and his ability just to, uh, to, to lead and to, to keep a team together. Um, and he's built quite a nice little, you know, assistant coaching resume. He's had, you know, at stints at, at Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, obviously now at the University of Florida, down in Miami. So he knows the state. He obviously knows how to coach. And he's very familiar with USF, obviously. So I really think that's a name that's going to get a serious look. Well, another Florida native is Joe Brady, who's currently LSU's passing game coordinator, and he's helped mold Joe Burrow probably into the front, the Heisman front runner, and a number one ranking for LSU or one or two, depending on you know which poll or what the committee decides to do this week. But um, he's a thirty-year-old Florida native, grew up in Miramar. Um, tell me about Joe Brady. Well, I, I really think that this may be kind of a pipe dream for USF. The, the more success LSU had this year. I mean, they're on a beeline for the national title. So I think Joe Brady is probably going to be in line for one of these power five vacancies, but he went to high school in Miramar. He's only, I think he's only 30 years old, Steve. So he's one of, you talk about the young uh, up and coming wonderkins in, in coaching. He, he's one of them. Um, again, he ha- he's, he's just done with Joe Burrow. The job he's done is beyond, I think, what anybody, anyone could have envisioned this year. Um, but I think Joe Brady's the guy, ultimately, he's going to be in position for one of these Power 5 vacancies. But if not, I think that's somebody Michael Kelly would take a serious look at. Another Florida native, Jeff Scott, Clemson's co-offensive coordinator. Of course, his dad spent more than a decade on Bobby Bowden's staff at Florida State. Um, he's 38 right. years old, and, and we all know what Clemson's offense has done the last, uh, you know, what, 10 years or so. Um, and the, the, the talent they have going through there. So what about Jeff Scott? Well, you just look at some of the receivers that have gone to the NFL, you know, in the last half decade. Those are Jeff Scott's guys. He was a receivers coach, and now he's the co-offensive coordinator. Um, the guy knows how to coach. Uh, he, uh, in his second year as a head coach, he coached at the high school level in South Carolina, um, coached a team. I don't know how to pronounce the name. I think it's Blythewood or Blithwood in South Carolina. Uh, they were a JV program his first year. Second year, they moved up and became a varsity program, and he led them to a state title. So this guy's got it in his blood. He was born in Arcadia, right in the central part of the state, uh, you know, a little bit uh, west of Sebring. Because um, dad, Brad, was the coach at DeSoto County High School in Arcadia before, you know, graduating to FSU and becoming one of Bobby Bowden's top lieutenants for years and years. So... The guy knows the state, uh, what he's done with Clemson's offense. I mean, that speaks for itself. He's um, believed to be, from everything I've heard and read, one of the top recruiters on that staff. Um, obviously, you know, would have no problem coming in to, to Florida and knowing the territory and being able to recruit, 
you know, right off the bat. And just a little note, uh, he does have a USF tie. His father, Brad, who we've talked about, graduated from USF. So he would be kind of a legacy if Michael Kelly went after him. And it's interesting to note also, Steve, Michael Kelly for years and years was kind of the second in command in the Atlantic Coast Conference. He was he was an administrator in the ACC. So his he has a constellation of networks um, in, in that conference, and I'm sure he knows Clemson and the people there very well. So he may have some pretty good connections as far as Jeff Scott goes. Uh, I, you know, if I were a wagering man, and I'm not, I would think that might be Michael Kelly's first phone call. Well, another form or another uh, person currently on the staff who wants to be a head coach is Sean King, former Bucks quarterback who's the USF running backs coach. Any possibility he could be looked at for this position? I think it's a possibility. What's playing against Sean is he has no head coaching experience, and but of course, you know. Jeff Scott doesn't either outside, you know, a couple of years at the high school level. So I don't know how much that would play for or against him. I do know he is USS ace recruiter in the Bay area. And if he doesn't get the job, whoever does would be wise just to keep him on board, just to keep some stability, not only on the current team, but in, in recruiting. Um, it, it's interesting. It should be noted that in Quentin flowers, best season, which was 2016, he was Quentin flowers position coach. So, I think, you know, for all of uh, Quentin Flowers' natural abilities, somebody had to be there to refine it, and that person was Sean King. He, he was Quentin Flowers' position coach. Um, he's a pupil of the, the Gulf Coast offense, the Willie Taggart offense, so if, they, if USF wanted to revert to that and do something more aligned with the Gulf Coast offense, Sean has the chops to, to implement that. Um, but again, he's never been a head coach, and I don't know whether head coaching experience will be a, a prerequisite. Uh, obviously, again, Michael Kelly's not going to is going to play it really close to the vest. But um, again, if he does, I know he wants to be a coach. If he doesn't get the head coaching job, whoever whoever is the coach would be wise to keep him on board. He's Joey Knight. He's the Tampa Bay Times beat writer for the USF Bulls, who now have a head coaching vacancy. So apparently, you're going to have lots of stories to write over the next week or two or four or depending on how long the search goes. And some of it impacts on, you know, where they may be getting coaches from. If some of these coaches are in, you know, say Clemson's co-offense coordinator, if they're going to the college football playoff, uh, you know, it may take some time before you can get those jobs done, correct? Well, it, it might, but um, they, they don't have a lot of time to use. The, uh, the early signing date for the NCAA is December 18th. So that's that about 16 days away. So I think USF is going to act much sooner rather than later. Uh, they would like the luxury of waiting for some of these seasons to play out, but they just simply don't have that luxury. I think I think this is going to get done in pretty short order, Steve. Well, that means you'll have a little more time later in the month then. <laughs> and I would love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have you back on as we have more developments and, of course, follow you on Twitter and read your stories at TampaBay.com or in the Tampa Bay Times as uh, you have the latest on the, the coaching search. I appreciate it, Steve. My pleasure. All right, so that's it for me and Eduardo uh, from Jacksonville. Tomorrow uh, we'd like you guys to submit um, your mailbag questions. We're going to have a mailbag for tomorrow's show. Yeah, mailbags are good, man. We can talk college football. We can talk about the race, the lightning. Uh, By the way, the lightning, man. What's going on with those guys? They need to get going a little bit here. Um, So submit those questions. You do that by reaching us on Twitter at SportsDayTB. You can reach me on Twitter at NFL Stroud. Or my email address is rstroud at NFL at NFL, rstroud at Tampa Bay. 
www.thepowerofpositivity.com. And uh, we'll be happy to get those on for you tomorrow. So uh, submit those, and we'll have that for our Tuesday podcast. For Eduardo Encina, uh, a victorious Tampa Bay Bucks have beaten the Jacksonville Jaguars 28-11. to We'll talk to you tomorrow. 